I especially, I especially wanted to join you for communion because of where we begin with Babylon. There's two construct chains in the three angels' messages. Does anybody know what they are? Well, actually, I, before I begin, um, I hope you can find some paper and, and papers and pencils so that you can write things down. I'm going to ask you to refrain from dialogue while I'm speaking tonight because I have an extra long talk. And I'm going to try to shorten it, but it will make it that much longer if we pause for dialogue. And then at the end, if you jot down your comments and questions, uh, at the end, we'll be happy to dialogue then. As you know from this morning, our title for tonight is Babylon Crucifies Jesus. It's meant to be kind of an unsettling title to make you think. And it's not, it's not true in the sense that we normally would think of. I mean, it wasn't Babylon that directly nailed him to the cross. It wasn't Babylon that sat in judgment about him. And I know that uh, many commentators ascribe Rome as, as Babylon. Actually, I believe Rome was the beast, and Babylon rides the beast, therefore Babylon can't be Rome. Uh, and I'm talking about in John's day, I'm not talking about in Adventist eschatology right now. So, I this is why I took the journey I did to to see if there was a historical reason why Revelation picks Babylon the way it does. And that, that was part of what drove my journey. But Revelation concludes a long chapter, chapter 18, which is all about Babylon and the fall of Babylon, with these words. And in you, speaking to Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. In Babylon is found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. And I mentioned this construct change that is in both, in, in two places in the three angels' messages. The first place is Babylon. Fallen, fallen is that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine, of the wrath of her fornication. That's the first construct chain. Wine and wrath are in that one. The second construct chain is the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. The third angel's message. So you have wine and you have wrath in that construct chain. And we have to ask, are they the same? And I believe not. God's wrath is poured out. And there's a text in Romans chapter 2. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath, and my version has for yourself, but in the Greek it could be in yourself. Store up, storing up wrath for in yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. This is not telling up the deeds and making a price. This is what the deeds will do to you in repayment. Is it possible that we're the cup that God pours out? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't decided yet on that. But it, but it does seem that God's wrath is letting something go, pouring it out. It is not the wine of the wrath of his fornication. And not surprisingly, and I should have pointed this out when we talked about God's wrath last night. Interestingly enough, God's wrath, or I should say Babylon's wrath, is fornication with kings. The wine of the wrath of her fornication with kings. That we find in chapter 18, verse 4. So that fits with what I've discovered with divine anger paralleling kingly anger. So we're going to look at some of these things, and this will come at the end, actually, of what we go through. So if, if in Babylon is found all of the blood of everybody who's been slaughtered on the earth, what does that suggest? Doesn't it suggest that Babylon is responsible for all bloodshed? War seems to have begun in Mesopotamia, and there you have it. The whole world learned from Babylon, or from Mesopotamia. Remember, the Bible puts those two things together as one. So the wine of Babylon is bloodshed. The wine, what is the wine of God's wrath? Isn't the wine representing Jesus' death in the New Testament? Doesn't wine represent Jesus' death? And if it does, then whatever God's wrath does, Jesus experienced. So one way to look at the plagues, this is, this is just a teaser. I'm sorry, I can't go into it in depth. But just one way to look at the plagues is to look at them through the frame of Jesus' death. It starts out with blood in the sea and blood in the rivers. Jesus being beaten, scourged, blood pouring down his back, thorn of plant, uh, a crown of thorns on his head, blood streaming down his face. And then it moves from one thing to another, including darkness, the loss of sunlight, including heat, at midday heat. Jesus says, I thirst. It actually goes in parallel of Jesus' death and all that he suffered in the same order as listed the plagues in Revelation. And I really believe that that lies behind, that Jesus' death lies behind the plagues. So, early this week I said that the Bible understands that Rabbi Babylonia is responsible for the kind of artificial life that human beings have come to live. 
Is it possible that living a life of economic self-interest, using hierarchical control of others and forming contractual ties instead of bonds of trust and love could lead to all the human bloodshed in the world? How many wars have been fought over economics? So I believe that the, in my study that the Babylonian picture of God that lay behind the crucifixion of Jesus and the, and the Babylonian institutions and methods led to his cross. Because we have to keep in mind, Babylon influenced Persia to the east, Greece to the west, Rome farther west, and other regions of the world nearby. And it still influences us today, as we've noted. So I believe that Revelation speaks with two voices, and this is not the same as the two voices I was talking about last evening. These voices are one that fit his day and witnessed to Jesus' death, and the other one fits much later time that we understand to be Adventist eschatology. We would take the time to explore both of these voices if we had time, but we just don't. So I want to look first at Babylonian formative influences on Judaism. Now, when I say Judaism, I mean the Israelite nation after it came back from exile. That's form formally, or I should say, classically called Judaism. That's when Judaism emerged, was after, probably during the exile, but certainly after the exile. When I talk about Israelites, Hebrews, I'm usually talking about pre-exilic period. So, during the exile, while they were in Babylonia, the Sanhedrin was born. It seems to have derived from a circle of priests in Babylon called the Kanishtu. The Babylonian temple often served in a judicial capacity with the judges. The Sanhedrin emulated this. Sanhedrin was a judicial body which is why the greater proportion of members were priests. There were only a few Pharisees allowed. Even in pre-exilic times, the priests had a judicial function, but not as fully as it came to in Judaism. The Sanhedrin, more than any other judicial body, led directly to the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate was forced, practically, to agree to their wishes. Then there's the rabbinic traditions. The oral laws, what later became the Mishnah when it was written down, contrived artificial ways to keep people obedient. And these were formed on a Babylonian principle known as expansionism. Expansionism is you take an, the basic law of the goring ox. If, a gore, if an ox gores another ox, then that ox should be killed if it's in the habit of goring and the owner hasn't kept it in, it should be killed and uh, they should divide the live and the dead ox between the two owners. Well, they expanded that law and, and you find some of this expansion, expansionism in, in uh, the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 21 to 23. But it, the Mishnah does it even more, just more exhaustively. Law after law after law that are similar, that expand one possible scenario with another possible scenario and then another possible scenario. This comes out of 
Babylon, and especially Hammurabi's laws. Because they were fighting people who were looking for loopholes and ways out? It's, you had to make sure that people obeyed or we'd go into captivity again. It was that fear of going into captivity again that drove it. These laws, together with the Gemara, later formed the Babylonian Talmud. And as I mentioned this morning, the Babylonian Talmud was uh, certainly formed by Babylonian Jews. Of course, in Jesus' day, they were only oral. Jesus continually got in trouble with the legal experts of Jerusalem, Pharisees and scribes. I read a very interesting article that proposed quite a bit of evidence to support the possibility that the scribes were what they called themselves. Pharisees is what the Sadducees called them. So scribes is simply another term for Pharisees. Scribes, even Pharisees, is how you should read it in the Greek. The and is really even, which is another definition of it. Moses and Hammurabi. Moses' earliest role seems to be primarily that of deliverer and spokesperson for God, and only secondarily lawgiver. During exile, the Hebrews called the Jews by Babylon, Babylon, I'm sorry, Hebrews called Jews by Babylonians, turned to Torah, the law, and to law-keeping as a substitute for temple worship. They no longer had the temple, so they had to substitute something for it in its place, and they substituted Torah. It also served as a means of keeping Yahweh placated. In the process, they reversed the two roles Moses played in, ta- in terms of top priority. Moses was first a lawgiver and secondary, secondarily a deliverer. In some of these disputes, lo- Jesus lowers Moses' status just enough to remove some of the worshipful glamour that he held on par with Hammurabi. They came to almost worship Moses. But Moses said, you know how often they said to him that? Moses said, in some of Jesus, oh, so Jesus lowers Moses' status to try to pull that down. And uh, if you want to look this up later, you can write down John 6, 32, 7, 19 to 24. And then note the shift from Moses to Abraham in 8, 39. To 58. This is all John 6. Is so those texts again? 632? 632, 7, 19 to 24, and 839 to 58. Now we come to the role of the scribe. This will sharpen our understanding of the Pharisees. In the Neo Babylonian period, the period the Jews were in Babylonia, the role of the scribe changed. Instead of barely being a writer who served in the courts, the scribe gained a more judicial role, even operating at times as a judge. The Jewish scribes attained a similar function. The Sadducees called them Pharisees, as I've mentioned. These are the ones who constantly track Jesus, attempting to catch him in a legal error. And I mentioned this morning Lilax Talionis, Long before Moses and before Hammurabi, legal penalties were usually pecuniary, that is, payments of fines. You didn't have bodily penalties early on. 
But as we noted this morning, Hammurabi brought an innovation into the law known as the Lex Talionis, or Law of Retaliation. And I'm going to give you a few examples that I couldn't give you this morning. If an Awilu, that is a free man, should blind the eye of another Awilu, or free man, they shall blind his eye. If he should break the bone of another free man, they shall break his bone. If a free man should knock out the tooth of another free man of his own rank, they shall knock out his truth. If a builder constructs a house for a man but does not make his work sound, and the house that he constructs collapses and causes the death of the householder, that builder shall be killed. If it should cause the death of the son of the householder, they shall kill the son of that builder. Now, as, I, as we pointed out this morning, Jesus took that part of Hammurabi's law head-on in Matthew 5:38 to 42. His version of eye for eye, take the other eye, okay? In other words, turn the other cheek, take the other eye. Uh, his version of it was something that didn't make him very popular. So these are some of the formations of Judaism that in part played a role in what would happen to Jesus. There are theological views that got Jesus into trouble, too. When it came to sin and suffering, the sins that the Babylonian gods abhorred the most were those that affected them directly by flaunting their authority, neglecting some aspect of worship, but also doing injustice to someone. And the gods sent verdicts in terms of omens, as we've talked about. To the Babylonians, all suffering, misfortune, calamity, illness, death, loss of respect, and defamed reputation was the result of the gods angrily and directly punishing the people for their sins. This view crept into Israel early on. You have an example of it in the book of Job with the three friends. Uh, What about evil spirits sent by God? God sent an evil spirit on Saul. God sends an evil spirit in Micaiah's vision. Uh, The Jews, the early Israelites, I should say, seemed to think that these things came from God. Everything came from God. And that was pretty much a pervasive view throughout the ancient Near East. And the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day taught views similar to the Babylonian view of sin and suffering. So they were constantly disputing. A man who was born blind, did his parents sin or did he sin in the womb? They actually argued about these things. Jesus said, what? Neither this man sinned nor his parents. But this happened so that God might be glorified through him. And what about the woman who touched the hem of Jesus' garment? She had been told she was a terrible sinner and condemned by God. But Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. And what they said about Jesus as he hung from the cross, God has left him. He's a terrible sinner. So Jesus taught against the Babylonian view of sin and suffering, and this brought him into direct collision with the Jewish leaders. The man born blind... Jesus breaks five Sabbath laws, as well as desecrates their baptismal tank of holy water to make this man whole. He does it deliberately. He spit on the ground. You weren't supposed to spit on the ground because a blade of grass might grow. You'd be guilty of watering on the Sabbath day. (laughs) He uh, molded clay. You weren't supposed to mold clay on the Sabbath. You might be making pottery. 
he anointed the man in the eyes above the neck. You were not to bathe or anoint anybody above the neck on the Sabbath day. He sent him clear across Jerusalem. The reason I think that is I think this, ba- this uh, blind man was near the temple, as was common. And the, the closest pool was the pool of Bethesda right around the corner. But no, Jesus sends him clear across to the pool of Shalom and has him come back. And that's the Sabbath day's journey and more. So he broke five Sabbath laws. Oh, is he, supposed to, he was also supposed to wash the mud off his eyes, and that was washing above the neck. You weren't supposed to do that on the Sabbath. They were so upset over that that they excommunicated the blind man when he vouched for Jesus. The approachability of God is another sore point with them and Jesus. You said they executed him? They excommunicated him. It's kind of different. <laughs> Spiritually, it's the same. Well, the execution for them. Yeah. yeah. The Babylonians, as I've mentioned, viewed the gods as alternately merciful and wrathful. They seemed to be controlled by their mood in terms of those who sinned. They could not conceive of God, gods that welcomed small children or who was a friend of sinners like Jesus, who ate. He was always eating with sinners, tax collectors, bad women. But in, instead of Jesus bowing to their more Babylonian view of themselves as God's servants or slaves, Jesus said, no longer do I call you my servants, but rather my friends. John 15, 15. The religious leaders tended to see God more like the Babylonian gods, but Jesus made God seem approachable, kind, merciful, and patient. Now we come to another sore point, and that's signs. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees are always asking Jesus for a sign. Give us another sign, and we'll believe in you. Well, that was very Babylonian. The Babylonian gods communicated through signs. They verified things through signs. Uh, The term sign in Babylonian also referred to a characteristic of someone or something, and it could also mean the proof of something. And the Old Testament signs largely had this last meaning, proof of something is divine. And that's how the scribes and Pharisees used it. But when the Jewish leaders demanded a sign from Jesus, They do not merely want proof of his divinity. They want a supernatural sign from heaven that represented a divine legal verdict, like the Babylonians believe, that could be negotiated. And to understand this better, we need to examine the Sabbath. Two nights ago, we discussed how the Sabbath in Jesus' day took on the Babylonian view as an evil day. It was a taboo day. And the, the laws that they constructed for the Sabbath were over 400 of things you should not do on the Sabbath. But Ezekiel refers to the Sabbath as a sign of God's sanctifying power, which is the sanctification through love and truth, uh, baptizing the heart and transforming it. This is not a verdict-type sign. This is a sign that reveals God's character of love. To Jesus, healing people was a metaphor for sanctification. So he healed people on the Sabbath day as a sign of the sanctifying bond of love. 
But to the Babylonian thinking leaders and Jews, Jesus' uh, Sabbath healings were not only a front to their rules for keeping Sabbath, that he challenged the very concept of signs as proofs, that proof that he was divine. Healing someone was as far removed as possible from leveling a divine verdict against it for someone. Because they viewed everybody as, as who was sin, sick as sinful. The verdict was in the illness. And Jesus said otherwise. He made people whole. And he'd love to make them whole on the Sabbath. And none of those people he made whole on the Sabbath were emergency cases. They could have all waited till Sunday. So I like John 3.17 in this vein. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save it. So there's some interesting stuff regarding how Babylon crucified Jesus. Caiaphas alludes to the substitute king ritual. You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. In the death of the king, the whole equilibrium of the nation was at stake. So this is very clear language denoting the substitute king. Then the uh, the betrayal of Jesus. Imagine selling your master for maybe a few coins, maybe a lot of coins, depending on what those 30 pieces were. There's three options. They could have been denarii, drachmas, or shekels, and ascending quantities. But it doesn't really matter. There's some idea that this is the economic thing gone astray, putting Jesus into betrayal. I'll let you ponder that. There's there's a lot of meat in that, but I'm going to skip over that. Then there's the oath of innocence. This is a common thing that the Babylonians did and the the Hebrew nation did. They, uh, when they were stuck, they didn't have enough witnesses, or the case was muddy, the person who was the accused had to go to the temple and swear an oath by the gods, or in the the biblical case, by God, uh, that he was innocent. During the first millennium, the priests, Babylonian priests, stopped using the oath of innocence nearly as much. They, they were reluctant to hand the controls over to the gods. They, the gods took too much time to answer when they felt that the person was guilty. And so they began to rely more and more on legal evidence of eyewitness testimony. And this is clearly what Caiaphas wants to do. He wants to have witnesses put Jesus to death or, or secure Jesus' condemnation. And he can't find any. They, they don't hang together. Their stories are all twisted. And finally, in desperation, he turns to the oath of innocence, but he doesn't use the oath of innocence to prove Jesus is guilty. Because in, in old Babylonian times, the oath of innocence was it. Uh, you, once you took that oath of innocence, you were, you were innocent until proven guilty. But that's not how Caiaphas wanted to use it. He wanted Jesus to, to say it by an oath that he was the Messiah. 
so that the whole Sanhedrin can be eyewitnesses that Jesus had blasphemed. And more than that, had come into direct conflict with Roman law. Summarize that rather quickly. Jesus, by the way, does not swear. Jesus says emphatically, you say, not I say. And more than that, uh, Caiaphas asked him to tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus says, in the future you will see the Son of Man. He does not use the term Son of God. You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. He does not use the word God. Power was a favorite word for God in Judaism at that time. And so Jesus leaves him with a way out. He, he didn't blaspheme. He didn't swear the oath in keeping with his own command about that. But Caiaphas simply jumps the gun and says, can, can you see he blasphemed and he tears his robe, which the high priest was not supposed to do. And they condemn him to die. The problem of the Jewish nation is their Messiah was going to have great kingly power. Jesus didn't act like that. He didn't act like a king. For that reason, they didn't really think he could possibly be the Messiah. And his earlier statement, which I consider to be something of a manifesto, he says, uh, you know that among the Gentiles, you could substitute the Babylonians, those whom they recognize as their leaders lord it over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he faced Pilate, the only way Pilate could put him to death is if he could prove that he claimed to be a king. And that would put him in direct confrontation with Caesar. So... Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from here. Pilate responds, so you are a king? Jesus answers, you say that I am a king, but for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. How many kings tell the truth? This puts Jesus in a ballpark all his own. He's not like any earthly king. So for all these reasons and all these factors, Jesus is put to death to reveal that the models that the Babylonians invented of of, uh, economics, kingship, and contractual relationships, this is the length to which those models will take us, to the crucifixion of Jesus. So I believe that the book of Revelation lays the blame for the death of Jesus and all the slaughter on the earth to the ancient ways that Assyro-Babylonia taught human beings. We have often viewed the wine of Babylon's wrath as false teachings. And we specifically mention which ones. Sabbath, immortality of the soul, uh, or I should say Sunday sacredness, immortality of the soul, and so on. That fits our scenario. But there's more. 
I'm not excluding those. There are more teachings of false teachings. God is arbitrary. He is moody, alternately merciful and angry. He decides and determines our fate. We have no choice in the matter. He will punish every infraction. There is little intrinsic cause and effect. Everything is in God's or the God's hands. God wants an artificial, inauthentic world based on fear and force that will bow to his every command. So back to this fornication with kings. I see John as having in mind that Babylon is old Jerusalem who rode the back of Rome to put Jesus to death. Now this is not all there is to Revelation. I, again, I see this as John's picture. Our picture is closer to our time and how we view it. But I think it's always helpful to look through John's eyes as well lest we miss something. Because the some of the pictures that I've given you repeat themselves in Roman Christianity. Now, early Adventists believe the fornication with kings of Babylon was a union of church and state. But behind the union of church and state is the ideology or theology of the construct chain. And to me, it's very specific that when you worship gods that resemble your kings who get angry easily, you're going to try to appease them, then the result is that religion and state have a union at some point. Actually, Ellen White foresees this in The Great Controversy. I'm not going to take the time to read her paragraphs, but try, let's see, I have page numbers, I think. I know I didn't put page numbers down. I guess I must have been in a hurry. But they're in uh, some of the chapters that were you're heading for the time of trouble. So to come out of Babylon to me, means to come out of the following false teachings about God and who he wants us to be, as well as the other ones that we usually mention. So God, the one false teaching is God values people primarily for what they do or earn, whether financially, socially, or spiritually. So legalism, earning salvation by our works, that's Babylonian. The truth is that God values us because he made us in his image and died to save us. The second false teaching is God runs the universe on his power and authority, not on his love and trustworthiness. He uses his power. His power is tools, are tools that he uses to help people, to save people, to protect people. But he runs the universe on the principles, on the moral principles of truth and love. Third, I have, third one I have from Babylon is, by nature, God is an angry God who must be appeased. And 
as you know from last night, I believe that God's anger is stepping back and letting us have our way that will lead to destruction. Fourth, Babylonian falsehood is God's law is arbitrary and not love in principle. The truth is that God's law is the law of love. The fifth one, God is the sole controller of our eternal destiny. In truth, we are the ones who decide. We have that freedom to decide who we want to serve. The sixth one, God is the destroyer instead of the restorer. His law is not built on intrinsic principles of cause and effect. The truth, as I see it, is God is not the destroyer but the restorer. His law is built on intrinsic principles of cause and effect. He is not fake, and his law of love is real. Next, God wants us to keep the seventh-day Sabbath for no other reason than he said to, and he wants us to make it a taboo day like the Babylonians did. In truth, God wants us to keep the seventh-day Sabbath because of what it means and to integrate that meaning and the Sabbath into our lives to recognize what kind of picture of God the Sabbath means. Finally, God delights in torturing people for eternity. Sin is what tortures us and destroys us, not God. Therefore, we are brought back to the reality God created and we can live authentic lives in love and trust, both with God and with one another. So I believe actually that the death of Jesus is part of that demonstration God gave us that he is not the destroyer because it was sin that crushed out Jesus' life. So essentially, Jesus came to destroy the Babylonian fake arbitrary models of himself and those he created and those who loved, who were willing to listen to something different than those models loved Jesus' words and wanted to follow him. And those who loved those models and hated what Jesus said hated him as well. So we have the call to come out of Babylon. We are faced with a choice, and none of us is exempt. I know Adventists have, we have excluded ourselves from Babylon, right? We aren't the ones needing to be called out of Babylon. It's uh, other churches that need to be called out of Babylon or other religions that need to be called out of Babylon. But let's look at this again. When the voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people. Who are my people? His people. Are we his people? So if we deny that we are to be called out of Babylon, then we're denying that we're his people. Because he only calls his people out of Babylon. Okay, open to questions, observations, comments. Yes? So 
The Jews have never accepted Jesus as a Messiah, as, as a total group. But I know there's a Messianic Jew that Messianic Jews are mostly, it's actually Messianic Judaism was started by Christians reaching out to Jews. And so the Jews that belong to that have been won by Christians to become Messianic Jews. One of the main errors we've been warned of is, is that the law has been done away with, um, cheap periods, whatever. Is that not a part of Babylon then? Yes, it is. It's it's more our modern application okay. because that wasn't something the Jews had to deal with. Right. It's something we do. Okay. So that would that would be one of the 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 way we look at the traditional way we look at it. So there's more modern. Yeah. also more modern so here's here's a statement a recovering addict once asked me if I was a religious person what is that I asked I'll tell you and here's the quote of this recovering addict religion is for people who want to stay out of hell <clears throat> spirituality is for those who have been there when uh, the blind man his sight was restored he was officially excommunicated. Was there ever at a time that Jesus was officially excommunicated? Not that I know of. Not I don't I don't recall any in the Gospels. The cross. Maybe yeah. the cross, the crucifixion, could have been a way of excommunicating. It was a little more than that. Close, yeah. yeah, because curse is in the time of the tree. Yeah. I was wondering that when the first uh, Sabbath healing. They wanted to stone him. I don't know if that was considered an official excommunication, but they didn't there. They couldn't. They they tried. Well, one time they tried to cast him off the cliff, and he just walked off <laughs> and disappeared. <laughs> there must be a, another question you have behind that. I know that obviously Calvary would be an exodusio type thing. He was really, really excommunicated. I was wondering if you knew of any example. I can't think of any. They thought, remember, they were careful with the trade that they would do, the adoration of people called Jesus. Right. Really cussing those. I keep seeing that. Uh, Continual temptation of people, including people who have allied themselves with God, is that His power and ways are not enough to get done what needs to be done. Mm. We need our help. Yeah. Means that we need other other means mm -hmm. besides besides His. You know, uh, one way I put it is lacking the power of her true lover. She lies to the king. Um, we. So you see Christians constantly through at least history, Western civilization's history, um, appealing to the king to, to accomplish what they can through the mm -hmm. spirit mm -hmm. and the love of God. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was waiting for you to describe the connection or typology of Daniel 3 
in your remarks, you had mentioned you were going to allude to that. Yeah, I was. I was planning to. Daniel, Daniel three is about Babylon and persecution, and it is the it is the trajectory that Babylon takes. I mean, that's the end of the trajectory. Is, uh, you have all these false truths or false, uh, not truths, but false ideas and, and theology. It culminates with exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. He deified himself and caught and told everybody to worship him. And Revelation 13 is the antithesis of that? I, I, think, I think it's in the lurking in the backdrop. It's not the only thing. And of course, the beasts of Daniel are... are the beast and actually the beast it actually may be Job that lies behind in chapter 13 because you have the beast which in Hebrew is behemoth and you have the dragon which in Job is Leviathan and I I tend to see Leviathan and behemoth it's lying behind the beast and the dragon yeah but there's persecution right and there is persecution and to me that ties with, with Daniel 13 I mean Daniel 3 we're, we're after nine. Would you um, just say briefly, and then close with a prayer, just the center of what you hope that we will get from what you have shared with us? And, and, and of course, in the light of that, you know, the Bible would give us practical purposes. What do you hope to happen in our lives? What do you hope choices we would make? I, I would hope for everyone to seek the love of God to the point where it fills us. I, I include myself in that. That it fills us so that we can love the world as Jesus loved it. And that we stop playing these games that we call religion. Yeah. And, and get, get real. And, and to me, the love of Jesus is, is the real thing. All love. Appropriate some other language. For the character of Jesus to be reproduced in his people. Is that fair? You could. It can only happen through him. Yes. And as we surrender to him, the sovereignty of love. Amen. That's true royalty in God's kingdom. And we can all partake of it. True sovereignty is what? Love. The love of God. That is the power. Mm-hmm. That is the power. The power of the king to sit up. Gracious Father, how much you have given us from creation to the cross. You have emptied out all heaven. You have you have done everything possible, spared no means to make yourself known to us. And we seem to have a knack for deviating from it, not thinking about you. But we ask that you will rivet our minds on you, that you will enable us to see you as you really are, not as our forebears Babylonians saw you, or as the Jews who crucified Jesus saw you, but as Jesus revealed you. And may we be so captivated by your love that we, by beholding, become changed from one degree of glory to another. And that you may use us 
to shed your love throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.